There can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you. For most of those people, though there might have been a bit of pain, there was also a sense, which was true also for me, that he picked it up, that he picked us up and shook us, and we weren't the same again. And we weren't at all sorry not to be the same again. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival. Supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is David Marr in conversation with Philip Adams, talking about the magic and power of Patrick White's literary legacy. So it is my very great pleasure now to welcome to the stage a living legend, Philip Adams. And joining... Philip, on the stage this morning, and we are absolutely thrilled and delighted to have David Marr to be our opening talk here this morning. David is what I think is a legend, really. I also like Mm. to think of David as our social conscience, really. He's a journalist. And a writer of some renown. I always tune in to insiders when David's on the couch. And and David is going to be sharing with us today the magic and power of Patrick White's literacy legacy. Please welcome David Marr. Hello. Thank you. Are we really going to sit tucked away in the corner? Yeah. Philip, what about coming and sitting beside me? No, oh. Perfectly <laughs> five minutes to get it. A scone literary festival. What has scone got to do with literature? Well, much more than people begin to realise. The number of significant writers that uh, lived in or passed through the district are a legion. Uh, For example, Havelock Ellis, who uh, would be the first person to attempt some sort of academic study of human sexuality, taught in the local school. And whilst there, he came up with the notion of uh, the Narcissus complex, which... uh, Narcissism was invented in Scone. In Scone. (laughs) And then it was stolen. It was stolen, of course, by Sigmund Freud. Uh, Judith Wright, the family, the family property at Bickham. Barbara Bainton, absolutely one of the most formidable 19th century writers. Uh, Barbara wrote a, an epic story on the, on the physical abuse of women called, uh, called Squeaker's Mate. And for a long time, she was a Murrurundi resident. David uh, is also well aware of the fact that Donald Horn was a local. Donald uh, 
come up with those three simple words, the lucky country, and forever after, they were used as a reference point in endless discussions about the nature of Australian society. And uh, they still are. Hardly a month passes when a book doesn't turn up at the ABC, which is a play on a play on the title. And then, of course, towering above everyone, like the Colossus he was, Patrick White. Now, this leads us to David Marr, because David is now, we are granting him dual citizenship. He's now become a part of the of the upper hunter literary elite himself, <laughs> because he was, of course, uh, Patrick's uh, biographer, and in a sense, his amenuensis. I, my regard for David knows no bounds. I've always thought of him as one of the two or three greatest Australian, greatest Australian journalists. And when I think back on his endless contributions, I remember, for example, the book he co-wrote, A Dark Victory, on John Howard's stealing of a federal election by manipulating the fears that arose about Tampa. I think it's probably the only book that Donald Trump's ever read because in the midterms you'd swear that Trump's manipulation of the, of the, people, the people marching towards the Mexican border was inspired by, by uh, Howard's dark victory. When he was uh, running Media Watch, to his in, in great credit, David uh, made it impossible not to have a cash for comment inquiry into the corrupt practices of Alan Jones and, um, and John Laws. I knew them both while I was working at, TU, at TUE at the time. No one ever offered me any cash for comment. Anyway, so, uh, you were and of course... Philip, you were in advertising. That is cash for comment. Is it? Okay. That's <laughs> the foundation of the trade, except you were always open about it. <laughs> Some others weren't. Um, but look, I interrupt. No, no, no. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's just a, It's ridiculous to interrupt a gush of praise. Please, go on. <laughs> So here we have in uh, Dark Victory, a book that still resonates, given that our treatment of refugees remains reprehensible. Alan Jones survived all the scandals and uh, now still maintains an inordinate amount of influence, at least in New South Wales political life. And there are many other cases where, oh, well, for example, these extraordinary courtly essays in which he made... Uh, you made the political ambitions of uh, Kevin Rudd rather difficult. And I'm sure Rudd has never forgiven, never forgiven uh, David for that. And uh, most spectacularly and still ongoing was David's uh, work on, uh, on George, uh, on Cardinal George. Uh, and his trial, I believe, is still going on, although for some reason we don't know about it. So all of this, all of these activities and so many more, David has influenced and continues to influence our political reality. But at least initially today, I want him to talk about Patrick, who, um, as like most great writers, have 
the waves of popularity and the certain amount of retreat. And I would have thought, David, that in the last 10 years, the reputation of Patrick has not so much, well, receded as just almost forgotten. Philip, you couldn't be more wrong. I had to choose between two events last night, being up here for the opening dinner, which I preferred, or being at the Sydney Theatre Company for the opening night of yet another production of A Cheery Soul. Patrick's presence in the theatre is continuous. He remains the most challenging um, Australian playwright. His friends, his publishers, nearly everyone begged Patrick to stop writing plays and get back to what he did best, novels. Um, but curiously, it is the plays that are now the greatest source of his literary income for the estate and for the charities that his estate all goes to. Um, his plays are a challenge for every, every big new director in this country has to tackle and conquer Patrick White to make their reputation, um, and that continues. When I, I'll be seeing Cheery Soul next week, and that will be, I think, the fourth cheery soul I've seen. The greatest so far, I don't know what next week is going to bring me, but the greatest so far was Jim Sharman's production of A Cheery Soul starring Robin Nevin, which remains for me one of the most um, extraordinarily powerful nights I've ever spent in a theatre. Um, the other day I, was, um, I, I sat down and reread Cheery Soul and how funny it is and how truthful this appalling do-gooder who can never stop, who volunteers, you know, this awful scene where she's, you realise that every Thursday she comes to some poor couple and mows their back lawn with a push mower <laughs> and you know that they've been living in terror of this woman forever. And, <laughs> and there's a moment where some children are taunting her and she turns on them and says to, haven't you kiddies heard of hell? And it's just, I mean, the blackness and the power of it. And she walks off into the distance and you know that she's, Miss Docker is still out there. <laughs> the, the cheery soul is still out there. Um, and that is undying. But there's a problem with books. When a, when a novelist dies, the appetite for their work fades Novelists have it hard. Playwrights, a night in the theatre, terrific. Yeah. Painters, let's wander down. Well, let's wander down to the gallery and see how Ian Fairweather is standing up, or Streeton, or and you can spend a very, very, very stimulating half an hour doing that. Novelists, you dedicate days to rereading their work or to reading their work. It's a much bigger chunk of time. And Patrick's novels are not read as they once were, but neither's Hemingway. And let me tell you who's not being read at all, Morris West. <laughs> but Patrick's work continues to be studied and read. It, um, it is the source of, it's the source of films. I reckon there are going to be more. One day Voss will be filmed. One day Voss will be filmed. Voss declared a couple of years ago by the Guardian's British, the British Guardian's um, literary people, the 77th greatest novel of the 20th century. <laughs> um, uh, and a few years ago, 
when Patrick's agent, Barbara Mobbs, what a woman, without a word to a soul, even me, um, she disobeyed Patrick's instructions to destroy all his papers at his death, sat quietly for 10 years, waited until Patrick's um, partner, Manoli Lascaris, had died, and turned up at the National Library with unpublished novellas, with letters, with notebooks, with uh, it's unbelievable riches. And I persuaded Barbara Mobbs that she should publish The Hanging Garden, um, which is a third of a novel which he abandoned to, <laughs> to write for the theatre again. He abandoned it to write um, Signal Driver. Um, and it's this beautiful, beautiful novella, and it's sold strongly around the world. And every now and again, I get a new translation. A couple of months ago, it was the Slovenian translation of A Hanging Garden. I thought, what in God's name do you do with the Slovenian? And I thought, Tanya Plibersek. Sent it, off to, sent it off to Tanya, got a very kind note back saying she's very grateful for it, but I was to understand that her Slovenian didn't advance much beyond have a nice day. <laughs> and the other thing about Patrick is that he haunts the creative imagination of this country as an example of what we can do. He won the Nobel Prize and... He showed not just writers, but he showed painters and architects and actors that this is not a forgotten corner of the world and that we are part of the great world of creativity. And he is the great example of powering on, indomitably powering on, powering on, to the end of his life, writing, creating. How has cinema treated him? I've got to say, I don't think it's treated him as well as it should. Um, the great disappointment of his own life was the deal he had with Harry M. Miller. Remember Harry M. Miller? <laughs> Buried the other day, garlanded with honours, and hardly a line in anywhere of the stories that he went for to jail for defrauding investors um, in a scheme he set up, which would have been magnificently financially wonderful for him, the first computer ticket scheme, computer ticket scheme in Australia, but he decided to defraud people, so it collapsed. He went to jail. But anyway, garlanded with praise. Um, Patrick's great disappointment was that the that Voss was never done particularly because a completely wonderful script was written by David Mercer, British um, screenwriter, um, and, you know, it's never been shot. There's, he, all his career, wanted his books to be films, wanted his stories to be films. He wrote a lot with the notion of, of the work becoming film. He loved film, loved theatre, loved film as well. There are times, David, when he made... Filming was extremely difficult. I know this because I briefly had the film rights and we corresponded on uh, who he would accept as a director. And you will recall that he had the veto right on who could direct. Yes. You could direct Voss. But in the early stages, he was enthralled by Ken Russell when he was making his sweet little films on Delius and... Uh, and Isadora Duncan, 
There's a forgotten the, the name, Russell Ken name. Russell. Yeah. Sorry? There's a forgotten name. Yeah. Gone now, gone. Yeah. Because he, well, he went, he went potty and made ever, ever more flamboyant films. He was, uh, he had a long list of directors that he would have been happy to accept. And a couple of them came close, but for various reasons they dropped out. I sent him a list of names of directors I thought he knew and liked as individuals, but he was very testy about it. He had a high degree, in other words, of quality control. Mm. Mm. Well, he believed writers find it very, very hard, very hard to delegate any kind of control over their work to anybody. And that's why, um, that's why I think theatre companies and film companies need to be very careful about, about, the, about letting people, about giving the authors too much veto over what goes on. Um, but he, in my case, he showed the most remarkable professional forbearance. He knew that if he had any veto rights at all over my project, that it would stifle me, that it would knock the, knock the guts out of it. And he never asked for a veto on, of anything. All he ever asked was that when the manuscript had been delivered to the publishers, that he would have an opportunity to, to read it and talk to me about any mistakes that he might find there. And I was quite happy with this arrangement until the reality of it came home to me, which is that he'd read it once and then he made me sit with him while he read it a second time. <laughs> him on one side of the table, me on the other, him quietly turning the pages, <laughs> chuckling every now and again. I would ask, you know, what it was he was laughing at, hoping it was one of my finely tuned lines, and it was usually something he'd written in a letter in 1933. <laughs> uh, and we sat there for nine days <laughs> while we did that. But um, although I did want to open my veins at the beginning of the process, <laughs> it was magnificent. It was mag he made me pay fresh attention to the text. To my I, I was able to ask a few last questions, and finally I put to him the big question: Patrick, face it. For all your complaints about your mother. She was your great patron. She was the one who made you a writer. She was the one who supported you. I went down the list and he looked at me and he said, yes, but she wasn't your mother. <laughs> <laughs> the most perfect answer. Did you make changes to the, uh, the text as a result of this? Um, he asked for no changes. I made no changes. Manoli... Lascaris asked for a couple of changes um, about his family. He was really anxious that I did not record that at the conclusion of the First World War that his father had left his mother and gone to, gone to Amer America. I said, Manoli, it's a long time ago, mate. No, I didn't call him mate. That's ridiculous. I said, Manoli, that's a very, very long time ago. Will it really do any harm in print? Oh, he said... There are people in Athens. I said, look, they know Manoli. They know, you know, First World War, they know. Um, and he, he said, okay, okay. Um, but that was about it. 
My gripe about the whole thing is that Patrick didn't point out the mistakes I was making in German. He spoke German. He should have known that's not how you spell the plural of sausage. But it went, it went into print. Um, how do you spell the plural of sausage? Wurstel. Well, they're for the oh, little sausages. Um, but <laughs> but um, what I was able to do is I, I was able to give the text a last polish. Mind you, if I ever have to open the book now and look at something, I think, oh, my God, look at that paragraph. That's not... I would polish everything till the end of my days, polish and polish and polish, I suppose, until it had all gone. Was he as harsh a critic of his own writing that stay with fiction as he was of others? He worked very, very, very hard on achieving exactly what he wanted. Um, he had a routine of three drafts for each, for everything he wrote. There was a handwritten draft, which let me tell you from a distance, looks immaculate. His handwriting, it looks just absolutely immaculate. And it's one of those sort of almost copperplate-ish hands. And it's only when you get close and actually want to read it that you realize it's virtually indecipherable. Um, handwrite, handwritten, then he would type another version and rewrite as he typed. And then a third version, which um, he, would, he, he, he would write over the typed version. He worked very, very hard. He was very proud of the work he wrote, but he was also in the way that the, the, that the greatest creators are, nervous that he had achieved his ends. And a lot of his hyperprickliness about critics was always the, the suspicion in his own mind that he had not reached perfection himself. But that, I think, are the instincts of a, of a formidable artist. Did he have uh, a favourite novel? Did he regard uh, Tree of Man as better than Boss, for example? Philip, he was a true creator, which meant that the last thing he created was the best and his favourite. Yeah. Um, you know, when by the time he wrote The Twyborn Affair, which I think is a profoundly great novel, um, not just about uh, not just about humanity and sexuality, but about this country. Um, the Twyborn Affair was his greatest novel, but you know, before that, it was the one before that. He, he came in a strange way to loathe Voss because Voss was the famous novel, the one that people took as their reference point, and the one that everybody talked about, he felt, to the neglect of his more recent work. He himself reread Voss quite late in his life at the time of all of the film stuff, and um, he said that he would change the punctuation, by which I think he meant the rather affected ways in which he broke up sentences. It has a very famous beginning. There is a man at the door, full stop. There is a man at the door, said Rose, there'll be somebody in this room that knows it much better than me, who said Rose, full stop, and stood breathing, full stop. That The, sen the second sentence of Voss is, and stood breathing, full stop, which, by the way, was the point at which my father threw Voss across the room and said some profane things about Patrick White and one of the objects of the seven years I spent writing about Patrick White was to explain to my father why he should pick up Voss and start again. Um, 
He didn't as it happens, but that was the, uh, the object of it all. David, how did you find Patrick White? How did, how did your paths first cross? Ah, when I was a kid, and I mean a really little kid, five or six, seven years old, my um, parents had friends who, after the war, um, bought a little farm at Castle Hill and they were um, you know, growing chooks. And Patrick lived at the bottom of their hill. And I never saw him, but in the way that small children absorb the fact that there is something interesting and a little bit dangerous in that house, that was Patrick White. And in fact, he and my parents' friends became great friends. My parents went to dinner a few times with, with, with Patrick and Manoli, um, and um, they were sort of there, a presence in my childhood. And from the age I was about, when I was, the Riders in the Chariot came out when I was about 12, and my mother gave me a copy, and, you know, I got every copy from then. Um, and then I came across him when I was um, a theatre reviewer. My very, very early days in journalism, I did a bit of, of theatre reviewing, I, and um, I gave a rather harsh review to Big Toys, which, by the way, he never forgot. <laughs> mm. um, I bumped into him a few times. I bumped into him when he was a witness in the Portnoy's complaint case. And I was an article clerk at Allen Allen and Hemsley, and we were representing Penguin Books, and Penguin Books was fighting a charge of obscenity, and Patrick was one of the um, expert witnesses called to defend the book. And he arrived a little bit early. And um, one of the solicitors said to me, oh, Patrick White's arrived. David, go out and keep him calm. <laughs> and so I went out. I was completely terrified, of course, and we went to this little waiting room. And Patrick could see I was terrified, and he was as sweet as could be and told me stories which turned out to be completely untrue about the vicious nature of the children next door in Centennial <laughs> Park. Um, and then gave devastating evidence. There was, there was an, sort of an Irish-Australian QC was the prosecutor of Portnoy for the, for the New South Wales government. And what he did was he would read out truly disgusting passages of that wonderful book and put it to the witnesses that this was the kind of thing that citizens, good citizens, should not be expected to be exposed to. And he read out this appalling passage about somebody masturbating under a glass table while somebody else defecated on top. And he, and he read it to Patrick, you know, and I can still see the finger of that QC, a very long kind of bowed finger pointing away at Patrick White. And um, what do you think of that, Mr. White? And there was a pause and he said, oh, I've heard of much worse in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> the jury laughed and I think it was the winning line. I think that that released Portnoy's complaint to Australia and made this country a better place where we could finally read modern novels. Why did he move towards theatre with which he would have such a problematic relationship? To theatre. Was, it was theatre from the start. His mother, Ruth, um, was a great patron of theatre in Sydney and... Um, she would, you know, go to the theatre and wrapped in furs and there she would be in the front row and she supported theater, amateur theatre companies and 
And Patrick was her little boy and, um, and her ambition for him was that she, he would be the next Goldsworthy, the next, the next great playwright. And after an unsuccessful but marvellously fruitful as far as literature goes, stab at being a jackaroo, that's both Happy Valley, which you can now read again, be republished because Patrick dared his, his refusal to republish it's, it's an extraordinary book. It's a beautiful book set around Adam Inderby, of course. Um, then later on, the Tribal Affair. So his jackarooing days were very, very fruitful for all of us. Um, went to Cambridge, came down from Cambridge, and he's in London, and he wanted to be a playwright. That was his primary, that was his primary ambition, and he had some success writing review scripts. It's very important to understand the theatre of Patrick White, to understand that it is essentially built on the rules of old-fashioned review, where people can wander on, address the audience, you have skits, you have etc., etc. Um, and he had his first play on the West End, unfortunately coincided with a thing called the Second World War, um, and that was the end of that for a while. After the war, it was a play he wrote, but in the meantime, that very important man in the artistic history of this country, Roy Demester, had persuaded him to write a novel, which was Happy Valley. And um, Roy, Roy Demester was for him the, the model of a modern artist from Australia operating at the highest levels, in that case in London, um, and he followed Roy's advice. Roy Demess is a very important man. He's also the man who, um, who told Francis Bacon to stop designing furniture and start painting. Um, he's a very, very important man, um, an important Australian. That family did two important things. They won the Melbourne Cup and they sired Roy Demester. And Patrick was very indebted to him. So it was always theatre. And I was thinking about this again the other day because... There's been quite a buzz about a new production of Oklahoma in New York, which is sort of set in a circus tent. It sounds completely wonderful. Oklahoma was one of the great theatrical experiences of Patrick's life. Oklahoma in beaten up London immediately after the war, he said, contained all the promises of peace. He loved Oklahoma for life. He was nothing about Oklahoma. People forget what a, what a grim story Oklahoma mm. is. Mm. It's not a pretty story at all, um, but he loved the songs, he loved the musicals, and that all his life. But his decision to come back to Australia was the bravest decision of his life. All the novelists and the composers and the designers and the dancers, they were all flooding to London and going to New York. He came home, and he came home with the ambition to be the great novelist. Of Australia, to be, to write the novels of Australia. Has anyone challenged him in this, uh, in his lofty position? Oh yes, of course there are challenges. I mean, Christina Stead, I think, is, is a formidable challenge. I think the man who loved children, which she idiotically allowed her, her publishers to clumsily reposition in Washington instead of Sydney. I mean, really, Christina, for Christ's sake. Um, and it would be so, it would always have been so easy for her to change 
the names back, you know, Wiseman's Ferry becomes Harper's Ferry and Watson's Bay becomes, you know, what. but it's a, it's a great novel of Sydney. Um, and she was too lazy and proud and stubborn to do the two days' work it would have taken to get it back again to its true setting. She's a formidable contender for wife. Um, and there continue to be contenders. And David Maloof is no slouch in, us, in helping us understand the place in which we live and the nature of the human race. A very great man and great writer. Um, no, he has contenders, but he is the kind of craggy mountain that looms over it all. Even if you don't climb the mountain, the mountain is there and it's Patrick White. Scone uh, Literary Festival. I'm talking to David Maher about Patrick White and it is time to invite questions from the audience. So if any of you have a question, identify yourself and we will get a microphone to you. And whilst people fight to grab the microphone... Um, While we do that, I want to say something about Patrick and Scone. He hardly ever came here. Well, he had uh, an interesting relationship with Beltrees and the Whites. Well, the main thing was that in his mind, this was... He, he never doubted that he had a deep connection to this chunk of the world, a deep connection to it. Um, but there was, a, there was a rather fraught connection because, you know, there were, four, there were four brothers and there were four brothers and three of them married three sisters, which was, you know, a handy arrangement. Um, but Patrick's father married a poor cousin and there was always, and she was a hugely overpowering personality at the same time. And that was a difficult situation in the valley. And she, in any case, was a totally urban woman. And, and the notion of her sitting in the bush um, was never going to work. And so she took Patrick's father away to Sydney. And he would come up here every, every month for years and years and years and do a, do a bit of work up here. But Patrick was brought up in Sydney. But you can never underestimate this sense he had of a kind of ownership that went beyond ownership, that was an imaginative and historical stake in this town. But it was the one he imagined rather than lived. Late in his life, he came up here and spent, spent time at Bell. And he was, he was immensely proud of his family, immensely proud of them, proud of their acres, proud of what they'd done, proud of their skill. Um, and... He came up here quite late in his life and he was writing his own memoirs. And I think that that was the, the sort of four or five days that he stayed at Beltrees, which, of course, you've got to understand about Beltrees. It's not just a great estate and a great house and, and a family that has lived an enormously long time on the one chunk of Australia, but it's a library, an archive, a treasure house of, of history. And, and as, as when I came to write The Life... It was thrown open to me in a way in which I've, I remain forever grateful. Patrick came up as well about you know, 10 or 15 years before me and explored the place, and he was thrilled. He was thrilled. There's a mutual friend of ours, and indeed of Patrick's here, and that's Barry, Barry Jones in the second row. 
I'd like a microphone to Barry because I'm going to do a Give, Just a second. I, we, he's got a carrying voice, but this has got to be broadcast. Yeah, no, half right. The reason I'm asking this, Barry, is because discussing this chat with David yesterday, you told me an extraordinary story about how Sydney Nolan asked you to intercede with Patrick and to repair their very broken friendship. It may not be a story that even David knows. Tell. Anyway, I've got, I spent a little time with uh, uh, Sydney Nolan. I think this was probably, probably 1989, something like that. And he said, uh, I, he said, I've been told that you see Patrick White a bit. And I said, well, if ever I'm in Sydney, I generally, you know, call in to see him for a while. And he said, well, we're both getting on and, you know, maybe, maybe reconciliation is appropriate. He, and I said, I said, do you want me to talk to Patrick? So he said, yes, I, I would like you to talk to Patrick, see if we could be reconciled. So the next time I was in Sydney, I went to see it and I started telling him the story and Patrick said, Manoli, Manoli, said, I want you to come in and hear this. He said, Barry Jones has been talking to Sid Nolan and Sid Nolan wants a reconciliation. And, uh, and, and then he turned to me, he said, you know the historian Stephen Runciman? I said, yes, I do. And he said, he met Sidney Nolan in the street and when Sidney Nolan spoke to him, Stephen Runciman said, get away, you dirty common little man. Get away, you dirty common little man. Oh. And he said, I said, do I pick up the impression that you don't want a reconciliation? No, he said, no, no, tell him no. I wasn't sure whether he was serious. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he was. He was. I mean, when, when Patrick White broke with people, he could be very, very cruel. Um, and he enjoyed the drama of that cruelty in a way that is not admirable. Um, he was more committed. He was more committed to the institution of marriage um, and than any Protestant preacher I've ever known. Um, of course, his concept of marriage included the fundamental marriage that he lived with Manoli Lascaris. Um, but he was, he was mad about marriage. And the problem with the... Uh, he and Nolan adored each other. They adored each other until things went wrong. And the problem was exacerbated by the fact that Cynthia Nolan had, when her marriage soured, had committed suicide. And Patrick also loved Cynthia. So that was, that was a bad one. That was a bad one. Um, but he did, but he made it clear to me shyly that one of the purposes of letting, of, of wanting me to write his life was that he would hear from people whom he could not himself make contact with again, who he did want contact with again, and that there would be a kind of contact by me interviewing them. And he wanted to know what they thought of him. And that was often pretty tough, but he took it. 
question from the audience? Yes, sir. Uh, David, my name's Paul, and uh, this kind of dovetails with what you're discussing then. I mean, um, Patrick would be a terribly um, cruel and um, uh, awkward man to be with, and I was just wondering, um, one of the things that comes out in your biography is um, Manoli as such an extraordinary, long-suffering character, and I was wondering if you could expand on the way um, Patrick loved him and how important Manoli was to both him as a person and as a writer. Manoli quite liked suffering, you know. Um, <laughs> it was long-suffering by, long by choice. Um, but Manoli said something to me one day that just, just flung me against the wall. He talked of their meeting in Alexandria during the war. And he said to me, Patrick made me happy at once, and I think I have made him happy. This was after 50-something years together. They were, they were completely interlocked. He was a great moral force in Patrick's life. He was also the source in a way that I hadn't understood, but, but Christos Tsoulkos, in a recent, uh, a recent little study of White's writing, has made clear, and it's revelatory, is that Manoli brought author orthodox Christianity into White's life. And the notion, the notion of the figure in the desert, the notion of the seer, the notion of the, of the pilgrim in very orthodox ways, which are all through White's writing. Manoli was also, of course, Patrick's face with the world. Everybody adored Manoli and they went to him and he was, he was, so he, he was welcoming and, and socially wonderful. Um, but he was also extremely tough. His judgments of people and of events were as tough as Patrick's, but they were clothed in this silky sweetness, um, which could be lethal uh, as well. And he wasn't, he wasn't always trying to mend fences. He was for, he was for quite a lot of it as himself. When Patrick was dying, I was sitting with Manoli in the garden and he said to me, in a few days I will find what was him and what was me. Whoa. Um, and it was thought that when Patrick died, that Manoli would travel, he would go to Greece, he would, you know, see his family, he would, but he didn't. Um, I think from the day Patrick died, Manoli didn't go much further than Double Bay. Did David, sorry, David, did Patrick have a fear of death? Patrick died. Um, Patrick decided to die. Um, he said he did really, really want to stick around for the, long, for the, for the appearance of the biography because he wanted to see the gnashing of teeth. He wanted, he wanted. Um, but a couple of months after we'd sat for those agonizing nine days at his, at his table, um, he got another of the chest infections that just dogged him his entire life. His, his lungs were shot. He had a, 
a particularly appalling version of asthma. He'd have been dead a very, very long time ago, but for the invention of cortisone. He was one of the, he was one of the first cortisone survivors in Australia. Um, but he had had enough and he decided very bravely and with great determination that he would not have oxygen at this time. There would, there, he would not go to hospital and there would not be a bottle of oxygen beside the bed. And, um, and he died. I, I went, to, went to see him, you know, um, and um, I said, how are you, Patrick? And it's, and it's a re- just such a wonderful reply. He's lying there looking like a corpse, and he, and he looked up and said, not wonderful. <laughs> um, and, he, and he died. I don't think he had been close to death so often in his life. I don't think he had an overwhelming terror of death. He just knew it was there. And when the time came, he decided he would embrace it. Another question? Um, in terms of the literary legacy of Patrick, uh, especially in terms of uh, influence on uh, other writers, I'd be interested to know um, if you would know of any uh, particular writers who have uh, pointed to particular aspects of uh, Patrick White, uh, White, which might have influenced their work, and uh, in particular, would there be any uh, overseas uh, writers who've uh, mentioned this? Um, indeed. Um Patrick's style, who was particularly his early style, I mean, his, his prose became more and more open, more and more, um, more and more, um, clear, uh, as, as, as his life went on. So that the Twyborn Affair, for instance, which if nobody has read a Patrick White, start with the Twyborn Affair. It's just, you sail into it and through it. And it's so beautiful. Um, and strange, strange book, beautiful. Um, but the early style is Baroque. It's Bar- uh, Baroque modernism. Um, and now it's all so long ago that it's, that it's as interesting as, you know, Jacobean, <laughs> Jacobean prose. It's very, very interesting. And that Baroque modernism is a very strong influence in the work, for instance, of Annie Prue. Annie Prue is a devoted fan of Patrick White. And she believes that Patrick White is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Um, and in Australia, just, you know, just read a few pages of Tim Winton and you know that he's read a lot of Patrick White. Um, and his influence is there all through the writing in Australia. It's there, um, sometimes strongly, sometimes faintly, but it's there. But in particular, what is there? is a complete confidence that in this country and among us people, we can be involved in the greatest dramas of the spirit and the greatest achievements of art. That's there. It's the level of ambition that he lays out for artists in this country and says, you know, if you don't get there, don't blame your country. Don't blame where you're living because it's all possible. And he says that to everybody, even if they're not going to, Adopt his prose style. It's all there. Driving into Scone today, I suddenly had a, a vague memory of a documentary called The Burning Piano. 
in which various friends of Patrick's came on camera effectively to bear their wounds, each of them taking, seeing it a greater honour to Mm. have been abused by Patrick. I was interviewing these people, yes, yes. Oh, look, some of them did, but not all of them. I mean, I've got a grudge against that film. I went out and did all these interviews with with literary and other figures around the world. And frankly, between you and me and the one listener who apparently listens to Philip's program, um, <laughs> those interviews were bloody good and they were they about us, literature and art and things in this country, bloody good. But the documentary is full of recreations of bits of his novels, which is, I think, got in the way of my work. Um, <laughs> Anyway, all of that material, I'm promised, is somewhere. But there were wonderful things. There was, there were, <laughs> there was Barry Humphreys talking about showing Patrick a collection he, Barry, had at one stage of Victorian ladies' underwear. Um, the weirdest thing imaginable. Um, that made the cut, let me tell you. But, but for most of those people, Though there might have been a bit of pain, there was also a sense, which was true also for me, that he picked out, that he picked us up and shook us and we weren't the same again. And we weren't at all sorry not to be the same again. I'm glad you've mentioned Humphreys. It was said at the time that there was a similarity between Edna Everidge, not Dame Edna, simply Mrs. Everidge and the cheery soul. Well, Patrick White saw Barry Humphreys performing Edna Everidge um, very, very early on in Melbourne and was enthralled. And he knew that he had seen a great talent and a great idea. And he came, up, he came back up to Sydney from a visit to Melbourne and he just started to spruik for Barry Humphreys. And he was Humphrey's great supporter. Um, and um, this all went really well until Patrick became kind of bored and disgusted with Humphrey's drinking. This was a time when Humphrey's was, was drinking before he went on the wagon very, very badly. And there is, and it's in my book of Patrick's letters, a spectacular letter he wrote. Humphrey's went to a, a drying out place for about six months in Melbourne and then came up to Sydney and said, look, I'm here and can I come out to come and I come out to Martin Road? Love to see you. And Patrick said, yes, come for lunch. And he was about two hours late for lunch and completely pissed, just completely, tragically pissed. Um, and came to the, when Patrick came to the door, Humphrey said to him, I appear to have sucked on one or two toxic tits on my way here. <laughs> And Patrick loved the expression toxic tits, and that appeared for ages in his letters as describing this, I mean, tragedy, really. And he was, he was very pleased when Humphreys went on the wagon. He wasn't pleased by the kind of Tory Humphreys that then emerged, but he never, he never walked away from his belief that Edna Everidge was a great creation. But um, Edna came, Edna came um, after... Um, after a season at Sarsaparilla, which a lot of people say, my God, that's Barry Humphreys. But in fact, it's a, it is a separate work of two men who both 
who both had um, a shockingly sharp eye for that kind of um, that kind of militant ordinary Australia. A final question, please. Um, with all these tales of Patrick's bad-temperedness and cruelty, and I think I would have been terrified to meet him, I think there is, there is another side that I'm sure you know of, but a few years ago I went to an event in Mossman where Elizabeth Harrower was talking and text had just published, republished some of her work. And she told stories about how she'd met Patrick in London. She'd stayed in uh, a boarding house where he was on the top floor and she was on the bottom. And when she came back to Australia to live, and she became quite a recluse, she didn't really come out in public at all, let alone talk about her writing. But Patrick was very kind to her and he would ring her every Sunday. I was quite yes. amazed. He, he yes, said, it's she got... said he rang her every Sunday to make sure she was all right. And she would go to he'd go to his his home in yep, Centennial Park and have dinner or lunch with him. And she just had only kind words to say about him and about their relationship and the fact that he kept saying to her, you, "Why have you stopped writing? What's yeah. the matter? You but must keep writing." The the stories of Patrick's fallings out and cruelties and 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 you know difficulties and rudeness and things have all to be read against a background of understanding that he was a man of fundamental loyalties, of great courtesy, actually, great courtesy. He knew the rules, let me tell you, great courtesy. And his friendships were deep and lifelong. And, and, they, were, and they were friendships that um, sustained people for life. Elizabeth Harrow was a dear friend. He loved her writing. He was perplexed angry at times that she'd stopped writing because he, he wanted more. He was, a, he was a keen reader of Harrower's work and he wanted more and he wasn't alone in that. Um, he, was, he was always a great patron of new talent and of young talent. Um, he was a very fine man and he was a very, very wise man. He is the wisest man that I've ever come close to knowing. Um, but he had his faults, but God knows, don't we all? Ladies and gentlemen, David Ma. <laughs> Thank you. If you enjoyed that session from the Scone Literary Festival 2018, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll be able to find all of the episodes from all of the festivals that we recorded in 2018 and the ones coming up for 2019, starting with Storyfest, which we'll be heading off to from June 21 to 23 and we'll be bringing to you very soon after that. There will be many more episodes of the Scone Literary Festival yet to come over the next couple of weeks, so do keep your eye out in the feed and make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever you get your pods. You can find out more about the Scone Literary Festival at www.sconewritersfestival.com.au. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us and give us a hoy if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. You can either send us a message through our Facebook page at Rights for Festivals 
or go onto the website and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.